Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the February 20th, 2024 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick look at the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. It's February, so the middle of cold and flu season in the Northern Hemisphere. Influenza, COVID, and RSV are in the air, and there is much concern about the low uptake of vaccines to protect adults in the U.S. against these infections. Annals published the most recent CDC recommendations for adult immunization last month, and on February 7th, Annals and the American College of Physicians hosted a virtual forum aimed to help clinicians put these recommendations into action. Dr. Janet Jokola moderated a panel that included Sybil Sinaeus, Robert Hopkins, and Susan Lee. Dr. Jokola, an infectious disease specialist, is treasurer and member of the ACP Board of Regents and senior associate dean at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Sinaeus, a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice, is Associate Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Medical Science at the Warren Albert Medical School, Brown University. Dr. Hopkins is a professor of internal medicine and in pediatrics at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He serves as chair of the National Vaccine Advisory Committee to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and vice chair of the American College of Physicians Immunization Committee. Dr. Lee is an ACP governor and professor of clinical medicine at the Renaissance School of Medicine at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where she is also the medical director of Stony Brook Primary Care. The discussion began with three clinical vignettes that raise commonly encountered issues related to vaccination. Following discussion of the vignettes, panelists responded to a wide array of questions submitted by attendees. Video of the program is available on annals.org. Click on the Multimedia tab at the top of the homepage to view it and earn CME and MOC credit. Next is a randomized trial including 302 persons with Dupuytren's contracture that found that surgical intervention demonstrated better two-year success rates compared with needle fasciotomy or collagenase injection. The condition is characterized by gradual shortening of the cords in the fascia of the palm. Dupuytren contracture-related disability decreases when the contracture is released. Release can be achieved by surgery, fasciotomy, or collagenase injection. Researchers from Finland randomized persons with Dupuytren contracture to surgical intervention, needle fasciotomy, or collagenase injection. They found that success rates were similar at three months for all three interventions, but surgery had superior success rates compared with both needle fasciotomy and collagenase injection at two years. According to the authors, persons prioritizing long-term outcomes may choose surgery despite its early morbidity and higher cost. They also note that collagenase injection is likely a viable alternative to needle fasciotomy only if its costs are substantially reduced. In a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines feature, two neurologists discuss a patient with a history of two prior strokes and debate the appropriate intensity of atrial fibrillation monitoring in a stroke of undetermined source, diagnostic and management of moderate symptomatic carotid stenosis, and therapeutic strategies for a current embolic stroke of undetermined etiology. Discussants are Dr. Jennifer Dearborn-Tomasos and Dr. Sandeep Kumar, both members of the Division of Stroke in the Department of Neurology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Go to annals.org to view video of their debate 
and read a summary of the discussion. Another opportunity to earn CME and MOC credit while you learn. The FDA has proposed a rule change to mandate that most multi-site clinical trials adopt a single institutional review board review instead of having separate IRB reviews for each clinical site, thinking that this will lead to faster review and decreased cost. This change would likely encourage the use of commercial IRBs. A new commentary argues that the assumptions underlying the expected advantages of the FDA's single IRB proposal have not been established. Ethical risks from institutional conflicts of interest have not been addressed despite the clear incentives inherent in the for-profit business model. The authors believe that unaddressed ethical concerns pose a real threat to the ethical oversight of clinical trials and argue that the FDA must proceed with more caution. The authors say that the potential to undermine trust in our regulatory system, clinical trials, and science in general is too high to move forward with the proposed single IRB rule until these issues are addressed. This month's In the Clinic Review addresses immune-related adverse events, toxicities that arise after the administration of immune checkpoint inhibitors, monoclonal antibodies targeting immune checkpoints in people with cancer. These toxicities can occur at any time after initiating immune checkpoint inhibitors with a broad clinical phenotype that can be organ-specific or systemic. Although most immune-related adverse events are mild to moderate, severe forms can lead to irreversible organ damage and have acute life-threatening presentations. Treatment should be tailored to the specific organ involved and severity. Glucocorticoids are the first-line treatment for most immune-related adverse events, while immunosuppressants and biologics are mainly used as second-line interventions. Go to annals.org to read the article for practical guidance on the recognition and management of these complications of cancer therapy, another opportunity to earn CME and MOC points. Cushing's disease results from excessive production of corticotropin by a pituitary adenoma, which causes hypercholesterolemia. Transfuneural surgery is the first-line treatment for most hypersecreting pituitary adenomas. After surgery for Cushing's disease, adrenal insufficiency occurs once the ACTH-secreting tumor is removed. The signs and symptoms of hypercortisolemia typically improve over time, but steroid withdrawal symptoms may develop after remission. In addition, the development of new autoimmune disease in patients after Cushing's disease remission has been observed, but studies have been limited. The next article I want to highlight reports a study of more than 250 persons undergoing surgical therapy for either Cushing's disease or non-functioning pituitary adenoma. They found that patients who achieved remission of Cushing's disease were more likely than those with surgically treated non-functioning pituitary adenomas to develop new-onset autoimmune disease within three years after remission. These findings have implications for the understanding of the natural history of autoimmune disease and its relationship to cortisol fluctuations. Additional new material includes a commentary on the deficiencies of statistical significance testing as a framework for presenting and interpreting research findings, two new on being a doctor essays and several poems, the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast, and the ACP Journal Club. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope I've piqued your interest in going to annals.org to look at some of the new material that I've highlighted. Stay well. Encourage your patients, colleagues, friends, and relatives to get the vaccines that the CDC recommends for their individual circumstances, and return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. 
Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.